Everybody and welcome to a new episode of Bleeding Metal. I am super excited to be here today. Um, my name is Kiki, uh, she, her, and I am here with uh, my lovely co-host, of course. My name is Pia, she, her, and welcome to our podcast. And we have a, a guest today as well to talk to us about our favorite topic, <laughs> so first of all let's um introduce you or uh, please introduce yourself anna sure um so i'm dr anna s rogers and i am a lecturer and sociologist at the university of georgia that is so awesome your pronouns yes <laughs> my pronouns are she her i love how you how you put your title in your name as well <laughs> because it is something really important and uh, that is to just dive right into the topic, right? Um, all of these kind of academic achievements, I think it is, uh, I don't know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say this and it's gonna sound wrong, but I think it's kind of more usual or more natural to hear men say those kind of things. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's just really amazing to have, to have women be proud of their achievements just as well. Absolutely. So um, my mom actually, there's a little bit, a little bit of a backstory since we're talking about feminism today. Anyways, she actually um, got pregnant with me when she was a teenager and she had a full ride to, you know, full scholarship to go to college. And basically her, you know, her school kind of doubted whether or not she was actually going to be able to go to college while she had a baby. And she just showed everybody and went all the way through and got a PhD herself. And so she has always been huge on education. And once I got my doctorate, she was like, you always introduce yourself as doctor. Uh, Hell yes. Earned that. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. Oh, she's a total badass and total feminist. I love her to death. <laughs> Great. <laughs> that is amazing. And yeah, with that, you also just introduced the our topic for today we're going to talk about feminism again and uh, i am super <laughs> hyped about that <laughs> um but before we uh, start getting more into the nitty-gritty of it so to speak just to uh, i just wanted to do a short check-in with uh, all of us together because we are still going through a full-on pandemic um i have the news that i just got over COVID myself <laughs> I uh, I don't know. I held strong for two whole years and then it finally hit me. But I'm super, super grateful and fortunate to have caught the milder version of it. Uh, also because I was fully vaccinated. Um, I'm still waiting for my third dose. But, you know, since I just got antibodies the other way, uh, I don't know when that's going to happen. But, uh, yeah, I'm very grateful to be healthy again. I just got my negative and... Um, Yes. So how are you holding on through this whole global pandemic apocalypse thing? So here in Georgia, actually, we are kind of operating under the idea that the pandemic is over, um, unfortunately. So they have me teaching fully face-to-face -face classes, full capacity of students. 
which is very stressful um, and makes me very anxious. But, you know, I'm fully vaccinated. I was able to get my booster and I'd literally just like have hand sanitizer like I'm on my keychain, in my backpack, even in my pocket. So I'm like sanitizing constantly. All right. Lots of strength to you. That that does seem like a stressful situation. But I mean, it also has a bit of a, a, a positive side to be, you know, kind of close to humans again and uh, all of that jazz. Yeah, it does kind of, you know, feel you get a little bit more of that normalcy, even though you're using sanitizer all the time, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, what about you? On Monday, I got my booster vaccination. And um, on Tuesday afternoon and on Wednesday, I got a really bad headache and didn't feel really well. But yeah, I'm happy that I now have the full protection against COVID finally and can take part of everyday life here in Germany again because... When you're not vaccinated or when you don't have your third vaccination, you have to get tested to get in most of activities that you can do over here. And so life is much easier when you have this booster. And anyways, I think everybody who can get this vaccine should get it because there are people who can't get vaccinated. And yeah, for them, um, we should support them by vaccinate by getting vaccinated ourselves. Absolutely. Indeed. So let's now go into uh, our topic for today. Your book launch is the premise of uh, this amazingly wonderful meeting. Uh, because, by the way, it's really nice to meet you. <laughs> you too. It's, I'm so happy to be here today with you all. Thank you so much in advance for your time and for all the knowledge I'm sure we're going to uh, share today with each other. So um, your book is called uh, Doing Gender in Heavy Metal, Perceptions on Women in a Hypermasculine Subculture. Can you tell us a little bit more about, um, I don't know, how did uh, your research in this topic start? And um, yeah. Absolutely. Um, so as I mentioned before, my mom, you know, she's a hardcore feminist. She was big into education. And while she was going to school, my dad took care of me as a kid, me and my little brother, and he was the manager of a record store. So I kind of grew up simultaneously being in a record store with my dad, talking about music constantly, and then also having kind of this feminist um, input from my mom. And I feel like I just naturally ended up here. Uh, my dad, actually, he's more into like hair metal from the 80s, you know, he, and he was really big into like Bon Jovi and things like that. And so when I first started listening to metal as like a tiny little kid, it was more like the hair metal. And then, you know, I got into Metallica and other things like that with my dad. And then as I got into high school, you know, I went to a very, very rural school um, in the middle of nowhere. Most people listen to like country music. Um, pretty much that was it. And so, you know, I was kind of the weird kid to an extent that listened to heavy metal at my school. Um, and as I kind of got older and was able to like branch out and find bands that I myself liked, I got really heavily into new metal. And I know that that like a lot of people are like, oh, like that's so cheesy. Like all the metal fans come at me for being a big new metal fan, but it, you know, it is what it is. That's my favorite. Um, so I got really big into the band Korn, um, specifically Korn and Slipknot bands like that. Um, and then I went into uh, undergraduate and, you know, I was in my third year, I think, of undergrad and I was in a women's studies class. I have my undergraduate minor is in women's studies. And there was a book that we read that talked about it was like women and culture kind of in general in American society. And it mentioned that the reason that we saw the decline in the Lilith Fair and other popular like feminist music of the 90s 
was because of this new genre called new metal. And I was shocked because I had never seen an academic book talk about metal music. And so I was like super into it. But unfortunately, I kept reading and essentially the book said that this new hyper-masculine subgenre of rap and metal, the two most sexist, I'm using air quotes, the most sexist genres of music, um, led to a hyper-sexist genre and just kind of, you know, destroyed anything that was happening with other genres of women's music at the time. And as a fan of new metal, I was like, this is just not right. Like, I know the lyrics of the song. I know, like, the things that they sing about. And, you know, that's not, it's not sexist. That's not what they're saying. And so I was curious if I was biased as a fan or if the people who had written that book just really had not taken the time to understand metal and specifically new metal as a genre. And so when I transferred to the University of South Carolina, I knew that I wanted to, as soon as possible, do a research project and figure this out. I wanted to remain unbiased. I wanted to do it scientifically and figure out, was this true? So I was very, very lucky and fortunate and blessed to have come across my mentor, who is also the co-author of the book, Dr. Matthew DeFlem, who is also a huge fan of metal. He is like a walking encyclopedia of metal. He knows the history. He knows every band, the big bands, the small bands. He's gone to more concerts than anyone ever of all time, probably. And so I sat down with him and we just started having a conversation about metal music. And I told him about that book that I had read. And I said, you know, I'd like to get started on research now. And, you know, it's not very common here in the U.S. for an undergraduate student to start doing research, you know, before going into graduate school. But my university offered um, the opportunity to do a distinction thesis. And so I set out just to look at the lyrics. And so essentially the first project I did, I took kind of heavy metal in general as a genre. I took specifically new metal as a genre, and I compared the lyrical themes through a content analysis to rap, pop, pop music, and country music to see, is it true that metal and specifically new metal is more sexist than these other popular genres of music? And what I found is that the answer was no. And especially new metal actually tended to be the least sexist. It was still sexist. I found sexism in all five genres, but new metal was the least. And essentially what that kind of sparked an interest for me was that country music, you know, I grew up in the Southeast in America, that's like the wholesome music. So like if parents find out their kids are listening to country music, they think that that's great. You know, there's no cursing and like things of that nature. Um, And what I found in that content analysis is the songs were saying essentially the exact same things about women. It's just the way that they did it was different. So obviously heavy metal has the growling, the heavy guitar, the heavy drums. Um, And if you look at rap music also, I think that that's another genre that is unfairly portrayed as being sexist in a lot of cases. They're doing it, you know, to the the hip hop beats and things like that. So it doesn't sound like country music, but what they were saying was so, so similar. The only difference was that country music did it in what I call a subtle way. They did subtle sexism. So you wouldn't hear them, you know, using the word bitch, for example, but they would talk about women, you know, being in the kitchen barefoot, you know, cooking a meal, having those babies and things like that. And so what I basically ended up kind of uncovering was that women were being treated the same. It's just the the way that it was being done was much more subtle and some of these other more more acceptable, you know, air quotes, their genres. And so once I had done that, I knew for sure I wanted to stay within metal um, specifically. And again, as a heavy metal fan myself, during that project and going out and, you know, spending time reading all the literature on just heavy metal in general, what I found is that academics really had 
you know, historically a really bad misconception about heavy metal in general. Um, I was very concerned with the way the group was represented. Um, and the worst thing to me was the way that mosh pits were represented. So the idea that these academic people were coming in who knew nothing about the subculture, nothing about the genre, and were basically saying this is violent, this is hyper-masculine, this is, you know, negative for society. They do this aggressive moshing where they're, you know, openly fighting each other. And, you know, I was like, if they had even gone to like one metal show, I think that they would have seen the, the error in what they were saying, that it just wasn't accurate. Um, and so that led me to reflect on my own personal concert experiences as a woman, as a metal fan, also as a feminist, um, I should add. And so I wanted to go deeper into that. And so that's where my master's thesis idea came from, which is where the idea for the book originated. And basically, I wanted to see how are women fans describing their experiences as being metal fans? And how does that compare to how men describe their experiences as being metal fans? And so I ended up asking the, the participants the same set of questions um, divided into 10 men and to 10 women, and basically just compared what they were saying about the genre and about gender differences and behaviors at concerts. Um, and so from there, you know, I ended up doing a dissertation, which didn't have to do with metal. It was actually on self-identified witches um, in the U.S., which if you're interested in that, we could talk about that later. Um, but then once that was finished, I wanted to come back to this heavy metal project because really that's my heart project. You know, my passion was there. And so I talked with my mentor, um, Matthew DeFlem. I actually stayed and got all of my degrees at the same school just so I could keep working with him. He was that phenomenal of a mentor. And so he really helped me bolster and we did some more research. We, you know, he did a lot of additional research on the newer studies that had come out on heavy metal. And so together we took that original idea and especially him, I have to give him so much credit. He turned it into a phenomenal book and the book that you see today that just came out. Yeah. Awesome. Amazing. I can relate to so many things you just said, um, especially when you just read the lyrics of pop music, They are so sexist. So <laughs> come on. <laughs> It's most of the time worse. Yeah, that is something I wanted to uh, to talk about as well. But I think such a thorough comparison is what the least people actually do so consciously or, or are so aware of, of it. I think the whole um, prejudice uh, or the satanization of metal is, yeah. is actually <laughs> is actually it, it might have to have a lot to do with you know the black wearing <laughs> um the love for wearing black and uh i don't know lots of other things probably the imagery of album or, or, or record covers and etc but i think it's just it might just be about courage about uttering those words or or this the form of expression of using that kind of thing of these specific uh, themes and topics and words um, that might be it. I'm, I, I have no idea. You're probably uh, more knowledgeable about it, but what you were saying, what you both were saying about the topics and, and, and in comparison with other genres is just triggered in my mind, this thing of, um, or this other comparison right now, I am uh, in Ecuador, as uh, everybody knows, I come from here and um, I have obviously been <laughs> listening to different music than when I'm in my <laughs> other habitat <laughs> in Germany. Obviously, I, I listen to metal all the time, but here I do go out, uh, well, before the pandemic started uh, being so bad again. Um, so in November, for example, <laughs> I still went out and uh, there's a lot of reggaeton here, for example, which is very sexual, actually. Because of that, it has actually, it, it, it also has this, 
this kind of very bad reputation. But lots of uh, of the songs, especially the more the newer songs uh, by feminist women and musicians producing this kind of music are actually very empowering. And even the earlier or, or some of the earlier songs were, which actually involved women, they were very, they were kind, kind of feminist and empowering. And compared to the more, the genres with a better reputation, you know, this whole lot of super cheesy Spanish romantic music, um, the, the super cheesy pop ballads and all of that, that romanticize love in such a sexist way that is just so infuriating why how how can that be more acceptable and i think it just of course uh, in the context of a latin american uh, society that is very uh, conservative uh, it kind of makes sense but um yeah it's just i don't think we are used to analyzing this deeply all of the things that we consume in media and music um, and literature as well. And um, yeah, you just mentioned the launch of your book. So congratulations. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Of course, we will link the book on the, in the description of the show, but I wanted to read the description. It says... This book provides a sociological examination of gender issues concerning the evolving place and role of women in the world of heavy metal, grounded in feminist theories of gender difference and in close dialogue with relevant thematic studies from various perspectives. The study specifically analyzes how women are perceived to do gender by members of the heavy metal community, which has traditionally been largely composed of men and is commonly known for its hyper-masculine qualities. So my very first question is, what exactly are theories of gender difference? Yeah, great question. So um, basically, one of the biggest theories that kind of really spoke to me, even as an undergraduate student, was Weston Zimmerman's concept of doing gender. And basically, that's it's a very easy to understand um, concept or theory, depending on how you use it. And basically, it just advocates that gender is a performance for, for everyone. So even if it's happening subconsciously, you still are doing acts to let others around you know how to interpret your gender the way that you want it to be perceived. So again, through socialization, so things that we learn from parents, peer groups, the media, religion, you know, literally anything in our external environment, we get cues about what is socially acceptable for women and what is socially acceptable for men. And the people who do their gender, you know, again, using the words of it, do your gender, um, if you follow, so if your biological sex is female and you perform yourself in a feminine way, then you are rewarded by society. Um, Same thing if you're born biologically male and then you perform yourself in a masculine way, you're rewarded by society. But if you start to go outside of those norms, that's where you could potentially have um, negative sanctions or, you know, punishments to an extent for breaking your gender performance. Um, so the concept really, really struck me because it's something that, you know, as a feminist, I myself had just never thought about, you know, but literally, if you kind of break down and think back to your average day, what you do as soon as you wake up, the clothes that you pick out to put on your body, the way that you walk, the way that you talk. Um, I mean, literally, we could go into any human behavior, I would personally argue, and we could see how there's some type of gender norms guiding those behaviors to an extent. And the way that a person is treated by members of society 
Um, you know, again, do you follow the gender norms or do you break the gender norms and how that impacts you and the way that you're treated? And so I thought about that, you know, within the heavy metal subculture, because of the fact that first of all, you know, I didn't know when I first started, especially, I didn't know a lot of other women that were heavy metal fans. Honestly, other than my mom, I, back in my twenties, I didn't know other um, metal bands that were women. And so I just kind of knew how me and my mom were, how we acted at concerts and, and, you know, how that compared to how uh, my other guy friends acted at concerts. And that's really what got me thinking about it. So I think that that, you know, that concept was the biggest influence. Um, and we talk a lot, you know, there's a whole chapter in the book actually that goes really in depth with the idea of doing gender. Um, it also goes back to Judith Butler, um, who's, you know, one of our first original feminist scholars within this area. And she talks about gender performativity, which is very similar. Um, Weston Zimmerman pulled a lot from her research when they came up with the concept of doing gender. Um, so we kind of started with that. And then we brought it more into um, modern day kind of in general broad feminist theory and just kind of looking at, you know, sexism. Does it exist? If it does exist, how does it exist? How is it perpetuated? Um, and then our follow-up question, you know, that was really the master's thesis. But when we decided that we wanted to make this into a book, the question we really asked ourselves was, how has it changed? So if we go back historically and look at the genre of metal and look at this idea of doing gender within the subculture of metal, has it changed? Um, if it has changed, how has it changed? Is it getting better for women? Is it getting worse for women? And kind of what does that look like? And that's really where we, you know, kind of dug our heels in and got started on turning this into the book that it is today. You said that people, when they want to be seen as women, act in a specific way. Is there a way that women in metal act specifically when they want to be to be recognized as women? So that was the big question uh, that I wanted to answer with my interviews, basically. So very, very uh, great, great question there. So um, I don't know, like, if you want me to immediately start talking about, you know, some of the findings that are in the book. Um, but basically, you know, kind of in a nutshell, this is what I would say. I found that you could kind of group women metal fans into either performing masculinely or performing femininely. Now, I don't want that to be a blanket statement and say that there were not women, obviously, that would you know, it's a spectrum. So if we had hyper feminine on one end and hyper masculine on the other end, all fans, men, women, non-gender binary, they're all sprinkled on that continuum, right? But, you know, for the most part, I, you know, not official blanket statement, but I feel like you could kind of group women more to the feminine side or more to the masculine side. And initially early on, what I found is that if you were a woman performing more on the masculine side, you were more accepted into the subculture than if you were performing yourself on the feminine side. Is it, I could describe myself as one of the boys? That's a great phrase. Absolutely. Yeah. Just okay. one of the guys. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. That's what what it felt to me and how I acted for a very long time. And I was more accepted um, than other women who behaved very feminine. I experienced that myself too, yeah. Same. I think also there was this kind of, it made me like feel special to be like different to listen to a different kind of music, to hang out with the dudes in my band and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. And I realized, um, I later realized how sexist that in itself is as well to like, for so long have thought of myself like the, the, the more fun kind of girl or woman, you know, because we have this stereotype that women are, you know, like a bitchy or nagging or all of that 
shit. And so if you're the cool girl and you hang out with the guys and and burp along them or stuff like that, you know, <laughs> it's like absolutely, and, yeah. But then also to realize that first of all, there's a lot of us, and second of all, um, it doesn't make me better than anybody else and also that it's actually a very widespread behavior as well uh, we see that in politics a lot we see um, you know powerful women like Angela Merkel for example dressed very masculine and, and people point that out and also all of these business coaches telling you that you shouldn't be emotional at work so that you will be promoted and stuff like that and that is just so so wrong but um yeah, it's it's all of these examples that we see uh, in the in the world and in our lives that we are sometimes not very aware of. And um, again, it's just really good to be conscious about that so that we can change it as, as, as well. What you were just saying as well about women performing more masculine uh, and such made me think about how few women in the past, and that number is growing very fast uh, nowadays, how a few women used to do harsh vocals in yes you know the 80s and 90s and now how women who do harsh vocals also present themselves with more feminine outfits we have uh Cornelia Plant for example is a great uh example of an amazing vocalist who just you know wears pastel oversized um sweaters and I love that so much yeah, and she's still a metalhead, and she is still a woman, you know, uh, and nothing Absolutely. will ever change that. And she just has this amazing, powerful, uh, harsh vocals and uh, and just this, this great skill and talent. We were talking about this a few months ago, Pia, I think, about also how the lens on women in metal is more critical as well, and how women yeah. usually make, not make themselves, but... Usually women have to be better at their craft to be taken seriously. Mm -hmm. yep. And how this has evolved, because we also noticed all of these uh, young female vocalists wanting to do everything. We followed um, the whole symphonic metal with the, with the operatic female singers for a long while. And then all of a sudden there are all of these genius vocalists who can do all types of vocals. And I was wondering at some point if that is the new kind of like requisite you know, in order to be a woman in metal who's taken seriously, you have to do so much and be so incredible. And uh, how how do you see that, both of you? <laughs> My statement that you're referring to, I think, is that I said there are no average women in metal bands. When you are a woman in a metal band, you have to be really, really good. So, um, yeah, you only have a chance when you're so much better than every man who could go for the job. Yeah, so that actually fits in perfectly with one of my um, one of our themes or one of our findings that we had. Um, and to be honest, so you know, m my co-author Dr. Matthew Deflum, he would be the one that could really talk to you about what's actually happening happening within bands, um, and he has the breadth of knowledge of that. And I'm going to answer the question more about the fan base, but I think that it will speak to also what's happening in bands as well. So one of the findings that we had was that. Um, women, when, when you ask them kind of, what is it just, what does it mean to be a metal fan broadly question, or what do you have to do to be a metal fan or to be accepted as a metal fan? My, our, our women respondents would come forth and they would have this long list. You have to know the classics. You have to know the albums. 
you have to buy the merchandise. You need to wear the t-shirts to the concerts. I mean, they would go on, you know, for that one question, like for five minutes, which doesn't sound like a long time, but in an interview it was. It is. Mm-hmm. And then you ask the the men, what do you have to do? Oh, just show up to a show, listen to it on the radio. And mm-hmm. that two second answer. And so I was really struck by that. Why is it? And so right then and there, uh, you know, immediately we saw a finding emerge where women feel a need to prove themselves in a way that men don't even consider or think about. Um, and what's also interesting with this, you mentioned earlier that you're interested in kind of intersectional feminism. And so I feel like this is a really good place to bring this up. When or when I asked that question, I had two men in the study who were very open about their different identities from your traditional metal fan. So one of them was very open. Like he talked about um, being a gay man in the metal scene and being very openly gay in the metal scene. And he also had a list of things he had to do to prove himself. And then another um, male participant was Korean. And he also said very similar answer to what the women said about proving himself. And at one point in his interview, he actually said to me, you know, you're asking a lot of questions about how, you know, how it is to be a woman. He's like, you should try asking what it's like to be a minority in the heavy metal scene. And I, at that moment, regretted that I had not thought about that, you know, going into the interview process. And so that's something that if, you know, I don't know what's to come in the future, but if me and Dr. Matthew DeFlem, you know, did something further, I think that that would be a great starting point is to focus on other identities that are, you know, marginalized within the heavy metal subculture. Um, but I think that it, I think it speaks volumes that um, all women kind of had this set list of things that you had to do to be accepted. And for men, it was just like, it was almost like, why even ask such a trivial question? Like, yeah, whatever, you know, go to a show. That's it. No big deal. So I think that that kind of gets at what you asked, hopefully. Yes. That's totally the thing. Um, there has, have been these memes on Instagram for a while with uh, when you see a woman or a girl wearing a metal shirt, then there is always a guy asking name three song, songs yes. of the band. <laughs> or how's the cousin of the mother of the bassist called? Or yeah. <laughs> three songs in all the previous lineups and yes. all of the scandals. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but what you said after that um, with the minorities, that's something we talked about in our intersectional feminism episode because yeah, we, we thought about sexism or being a woman in the metal scene for such a long time. And there are also, on the other hand, skin colors missing on stage. Absolutely. That's a very good point, um, that not only women are a minority, but it's a very white-dominated scene as well. That is true. And it is just so um, sad because diversity brings so much diversity <laughs> in terms of creativity as well. So all the different cultures that um, that can influence metal and make it so much better, in my opinion. So, yes, um, we, or I at least, look forward to a future of metal that is even more uh, diverse and, and amazing. Talking about cultures and subcultures, um, in the excerpt, of your book there is also a mention of a culture of heavy metal feminism how do you imagine that how what would that entail so I think that that definitely gets um at the last chapter of the book and we kind of we talk about that as are like are we moving towards a heavy metal feminism essentially um and again this would have been the area where definitely if if Dr. Matthew Deform was here he would be able to give him a much better answer than I would 
um, because that was definitely where he came in and did, you know, that, that big piece of that research. Um, but I think that there's lots of different ways that we could talk about that. So the first thing that I've, and, you know, I've done a few inter interviews talking about this, and this is kind of not a great answer, but this is what I've been saying. So I'll say it again, and y'all can tell me what you think about it. But I think the first thing is that I have found from talking to other, other women, um, other women metal fans, that for some of them, when you drop the F word feminism, they are so used to hearing that in a political context and assuming that it has a political agenda that they're not comfortable saying they're a heavy metal feminist for that reason. And so I think that we have to kind of think about that word and the symbolism behind it and be careful with the rhetoric that we use because I don't ever want to put words into participants' mouths, obviously. But I think that when we think about going towards heavy metal feminism, there are absolutely hardcore feminists, you know, myself, I would include myself absolutely in that, who are big metal fans and we want to see the political feminism in there. Like we, we would love to see that, right? But I also think we have to acknowledge that when we think more broadly and think about feminism as just support for women um, and non-gender binary people within the subculture, it means that we have to understand that we may not be using that as a, as a political term in that sense. So for me, when I think of feminism or heavy metal going towards feminism, I'm, I would love to see it go in that political direction personally, but I think that it's more useful to us as scholars to look at it just as what can we do to see more women, support women. Specifically, we need to see more women in bands doing, you know, instruments, vocals, whatever that may be, and regardless of their political identity or political affiliations. And I found that when I talked to, you know, some of my women participants who did identify as being more politically conservative, they were much more comfortable once I explained it that way. And so when I say feminism, I mean it in this context, not necessarily the political context that we see in kind of mainstream society when you hear the word. Um, so I think that first being broad with that definition that opens up the door to support all women, you know, in general. And I think also it's important with feminism to include that means non-gender binary people as well, of course. Um, and then eventually, as we progress as a subculture, then maybe we can get even more into that political feminism that I, I would personally love to see. And it's not that it's not out there. I just don't think it's in the mainstream metal the same way that other things are, if that makes sense. It's something that I have been thinking about for a while as well and I was talking to uh, to a colleague yesterday actually a feminist colleague I'm working in a, in a feminist organization here uh, right now it's an organization that is very pro-choice and um, right now Ecuador is actually uh, the well the parliament is actually debating a law about abortion and so uh, it is like uh, everything, you know, it's work, so it's uh, all in my mind uh, right now. And I was thinking, um, I was talking to my colleague yesterday, and she said her, like, social media bubble um, consists mostly of activists, political activists. She doesn't really know any non-activist influencers, because we were talking about social media strategy. Um, anyway, what I said to her then was, for a few years now, I've been actually also thinking as part of my feminist uh, work, internal work, so to speak, about what you were just saying, how to talk to people who are not that politically engaged and that are totally scared off when I mentioned the word feminism. And 
And I was thinking also, if the goal is to, and again, these are very binary words, but, um, you know, if I want sexist people, I was going to say men, okay, I, I rethought that. <laughs> if I want people with sexist behaviors to stop those sexist behaviors, I have to talk to them and I don't want them to close their mind's door on me the moment I say I'm a feminist or, or let's talk about feminism or about women's rights because in their heads it's like, that doesn't concern me, bye. And it's closed and they just don't listen to you anymore. But obviously, like leaving out the word feminism is also very unfair to all of the work that feminists have made for decades and centuries probably. So I don't wanna, I don't, I would never stop calling myself uh feminist so um it is i think a very very difficult bridge to build i think for me it has been a challenge as well to want to do that or or to recognize my own prejudice against people who make super sexist statements and for me to keep my mental doors open and try to establish some kind of conversation to maybe build that bridge with this person and not just stand up and go away, which is something that I used to do <laughs> because I have no patience. Yeah, so I find it very interesting. So my next question would also be, before we go further with the details about the book, do you have any uh, more ideas? Have you, uh, do you have any suggestions on how to kind of do this work in the context of, context of heavy music? And so that was the one. How can we, quote unquote, promote feminism in the context of heavy mm -hmm. music? And I'm also curious, but maybe we can touch on this about later, uh, about your personal feminism, because I have also come to learn that we all have a very personal, individual and different concept of how we do feminism, how we practice it, how we live it for ourselves. So what does your feminism uh, entail would also be interesting to, for me to hear. Yeah, sure. So I completely find myself in the same situation you're in. There is that internal struggle between not wanting to diminish anything that has been done historically for feminist activism or research in general, but also understanding if you're going to try to reach those people who actually still have sexist ideologies, how do we get to them without having them put the hand up and say, no, I don't want to talk to you because you've identified yourself as a feminist. Um, and unfortunately, I don't think we have an answer for how to do that. I think that it's it's something that we're probably going to always struggle with internally. I hope that it gets better, you know, as the years go by and, and we don't have to have that internal struggle over that. But for me personally, and I, I do, I like that you mentioned specifically the idea of kind of, you know, academic feminism versus like your actual personal views. And so the one thing that I've tried to do, and this is not specific to metal, this is actually in my teaching. Um, so I do teach introductory sociology. And so kind of that whole course is built around the idea of, um, you know, obviously understanding what sociology is, but I personally teach that class to have students come away with an understanding of what causes racism, sexism, classism, homophobia, transphobia, all of those things, and to understand what they can try to do to make it better. Now, I feel like, and I've done this before, you know, if I go in on the first day of class and introduce myself and be like, you know, I'm this hardcore feminist, you can see the faces of some students immediately just, you know, some of them will literally roll their eyes. And so I immediately, after doing that one time, I was like, okay, this is not the way to approach the class. 
And so I stopped doing that on the first day of class. I do identify myself as a gender scholar and say that I do a lot of research on sexism, but I don't drop the F word of feminism, you know, on the first day. Um, And so one of the things that I do is I actually have, um, you know, it's a PowerPoint slide. And I should say most of my classes for introductory students, I haven't, you know, the smallest class I would teach is usually 120 students at a time. And that can go all the way up to, you know, close to 600 students in an online class. I have a lot of students. And also, most of them are not sociology majors. I may have one or two sociology majors. The rest of them are from other majors around the college, and they're taking the class because it fulfills a requirement for humanities. So a lot of them don't even want to be in the class in the first place, I think. It's just something they're being forced to do, and so they're already a little bit annoyed, so to speak, with the class before it even begins. Um, But when I get to gender and feminism theory specifically, I have a slide and I just say, you know, how many of you raise your hand if you think that we should have equality politically, socially, and economically between all sexes? Raise your hand. And every, you know, there have been one or two maybe that didn't raise their hand, but pretty much every hand goes up right away, no issues. And then I go to the next slide immediately and I show them that that what I just, the text on that slide That's the official definition of a feminist and feminism is, you know, promoting equality among economic, social and political um, power among the sexes. And so I say, you know, this term has a rhetoric and symbolism in the past. And, you know, in the class, we go into like symbolic interactionism and we talk about how terms can have all of these things and labels attached to them and how it can change culturally over time. And so I basically just say, if you'll just forget everything else preconceived before you came into this class and what you thought about feminism, just look at the basic definition. And I think that it's something that all of us agree on in our current society. And I don't think it works for every student, but I definitely think that that's one of the moments in the semester where I kind of see some eyes light up and they're kind of like, you know what? I kind of get this now. And I've even had students in their final evaluations, you know, at the very end of the course, they're completely anonymous, but they can kind of give their honest feedback and opinions on the class. I have probably had over 40 students say, and again, I teach a lot of students, but still over 40 students who say, um, I now comfortably identify as a feminist. And to me, that's a huge, like that makes me feel like I've done my feminist work. And I think that's why I like teaching so much. So for me, I try to incorporate it into my teaching um, as part of my personal philosophy, but I always try to make sure to do it in a careful way so that I'm not, you know, turning anyone off. Now, on the flip side of that, I have some students who come in and they say, you know, I'm a hardcore feminist already, and I wish you would have spent more time going into like detailed specific theories. And I do that in higher level classes, just not in the one-on-one class. But I feel like if the goal of my one-on-one class essentially is to open their eyes to these isms, sexism, racism, the things I mentioned before, that approach seems to have a better outcome for getting students to be aware of these things. And so I've continued to take that approach since learning that basically. That's so awesome. And it's so important and great that you, that you use your position as a teacher to educate people also in this way. And it's always important to, uh, to talk to people, especially about how feminism is connotated in a very bad way. Mm-hmm. Because I also often talk to people, not a, a big crowd, but <laughs> sometimes in conversations we come to the topic. And once I had a conversation with a man who told me he has two children and his wife his wife thinks about having a third child and everything. And then later I told him that I'm a feminist. And then he was like, 
oh wow and i told you these things about my wife and now you might think well she should go back to work and everything i was like no if she wants to have three children and wants to stay at home and do all the housework and everything it's all power to her um, absolutely I, i want her to have a happy life and to do things because she wants to do them and not because someone tells her to do that Yeah. And I think that that's, you know, especially in that one-on-one class, we spend a lot of time breaking those myths down. Um, and we talk about, and I even have, um, I haven't used it in a few semesters, but there's an article that just explicitly talked about specifically feminists supporting stay-at-home moms. You know, it's not that as long as they're choosing to do it, then we're fully behind them and we support them a hundred percent. And I think that that, I think that also helps students to understand that like, A lot of them, and I don't know, you know, y'all are much more um, probably, you've been around the world more than me because I've kind of just stayed in the Southeast of America my whole life. But we have really traditional gender norms here um, in the Southeast in the U.S. still. And so a lot of my students that are kind of hesitant towards feminism, I don't think they've ever actually met anyone who says openly that they're a feminist. Mm -hmm. And so I think that just meeting a feminist and having them say, oh, well, actually, you know, these are not, I, you know, those are myths. None of that is actually true about the things that I think. I think just even that one act itself is huge for them because they actually meet someone who says, you know, I identify with this label, but let me tell you the truth about why I identify as this label. And it has nothing to do with the things, you know, that the media or other places in society have told you. Yeah. That Builds a bridge to my question about your book, but maybe Kiki has another question. <laughs> no, I was just, um, yeah, just about to to celebrate all of what you said. My personal feminism is very much all about the power of decision, and that goes from deciding to, uh, you know, what a career path uh, you go, you you follow to what you do with your body and et cetera, et cetera. Um, that is obviously something very political, but it's also really important to realize that politics, especially this specific part of it, they just seep through our lives and we have to take a stand. There's just a way around it. Absolutely. I was just thinking, or it just popped up in my mind that many people think that feminists hate men which is total bullshit <laughs> absolutely oh that's one of the worst myths out there right <laughs> yeah um and in your book there is one chapter that's called hyper masculinity and heavy metal and i'm curious um if the people you were interviewing or especially the men were aware of that especially bands like man of war or this uh, this very traditional heavy metal style is built on this hyper-masculinity <laughs> and yeah what what their thoughts on this on this word actually were so i think spe specifically speaking for the men participants that i had um during those interviews i think that most of them when i would say the word hyper-masculine they didn't have a problem with that term they understood that like his you know they go to shows they see the ratio of the, of the genders that shows and so I didn't really get a pushback when I would use that term with them. Um, but they were quick to tell me that you didn't need to be a super masculine man to enjoy metal. Um, and so I don't know why, but one of the most common examples, and I was really surprised by this. I'm curious if y'all have heard other people do this too. One of the common things they would say is, you know, you don't have to look or dress or act a certain way to be a metal fan. I've seen guys show up in a suit and tie after work and rock out harder than the the guys in the, you know, covered in tattoos with piercings. 
And for some reason, that example of the man in the suit and tie coming from work, multiple participants use that. And I had never really thought of that as an example, but I thought it was interesting because I feel like that example also gets um, at socioeconomic status. So talking about the fact that it's not, you know, poor men necessarily, it's someone who would have a job that they're coming from in this nice suit and tie and they're going to a metal show. Um, so I thought that that was interesting, but then also kind of on the the flip side of that too, a lot of them said that they did not feel that there was a need for men or women to act hypermasculine. But when you talk to the women themselves, they kind of have a different story about that. Um, and one of the biggest questions that we had going into the project, um, and specifically this had actually, you mentioned earlier research in like political areas about women who perform themselves feminine or masculine. The, the literature review that we did for this, we looked at all kinds of groups, politics, leisure activities, any research that had been done in kind of a male dominated or hyper masculine group. We, I looked, you know, in the literature review trying to figure out what, what, what was the pattern. So no matter what kind of a group it is, did we see a pattern just based on gender differences and this idea of a masculine performing woman versus a feminine performing woman? And what I found was that if you perform yourself masculinely in pretty much any masculine group, you're rewarded more than if you're a woman who performs in a feminine way. And so I connected that back to the act of flashing at a concert versus the act of moshing. And so I was curious before I even went into the interviews, what were participants going to say about women who flash and what were participants going to say about women who mosh? And so what I found is that for men and women, there did seem to be a hierarchy that formed. So if you were a woman who got in a mosh pit, you kind of had the top tier respect. You know, you were like, like the phrase, being like one of the boys, being like one of the guys. And then as you um, get lower down and you start to see more into the femininity, and I would even specifically say the sexual, the sexualization of femininity, obviously that's where flashing would come in. So some of my participants flat out said, you know, I'm, I've been a metal fan for 30 years and I've never seen a woman flash at a show. And that surprised me because I've seen flashing a lot at different subgenres of metal for sure. And so I had to kind of reflect on that. And I talked through it with, um, you know, with um, Matthew, the co-author of the book. And, you know, like I said, he's been to more shows than anybody I've ever met and across all genres of music, not even just metal, but all genres in general. And we started talking about it. And I realized, you know, I've only been to metal shows in the Southeast. And so I think that traditional gender identity that comes in the Southeast, you know, being in the Bible Belt, I think that that may be why I see more flashing at concerts is because the idea that this is a feminine behavior you can perform that also is supposed to show your solidarity with the band and show your dedication to the band. Um, but what was clear was that, and I, can't, I have to say, I did not have any women in my, my specific group that said they would ever flash. And the women themselves were quick to distance. They would make fun of those women. They would call them groupies. They would say that they didn't have place in metal. They were very quick to be like, I don't flash and I don't associate with women who do that. And so they were very, and we, we actually call that defensive othering um, in sociology. So the idea that you are defensively saying, I am not like that type of whatever the identity may be. Whereas when you ask the men about it, you know, they would chuckle and laugh and say, you know, I've got no problem if a woman flashes. You know, there was like one guy that was like, I love it when women flash. You know, I think it's the greatest thing. But most of them were more like, you know, 
you know, her body, her choice, whatever she wants to do. And that sounds very feminist, right? To be like, if she wants to flash, that's cool. And the women, again, they were more defensive othering in the process of it. Um, but men also, though, were quick to point out that they did have more respect. They didn't come out and say, you know, like, I have more respect for a woman who flashes, but the nuance was there that if you moshed, you were to be treated higher and considered a better metal fan, I would even say, than if you were doing feminine stuff. One of my favorite quotes, if not my favorite quote from the entire, from all the interviews that we did, um, was one guy said that he knew that we were moving towards feminism and metal when he started to see women at shows who were no longer the holder of things for their partners who were going to mosh. So standing at the back of the bar, holding your significant other stuff while they go and have a good time at the metal show. He said, instead, they've got their purses, they've got all their own stuff in their purse, and they're doing the same stuff that their partners are doing at the shows. And I loved that. I thought that was really great. That's also my experience, because I, when I was younger, I was wearing these army trousers and boots and everything, and I was in the mosh pits. And I can also say that they are the most kind people in the mosh pit, because when you fall down, everybody helps you to stand up and stuff Absolutely. like that. Because um, earlier you were saying um, that uh, prejudice against metal, that it's so brutal and everything, but... A mosh pit is a really good place to be in. <laughs> But yeah, um, I think I had this high reputation, so to speak. Um, and I was also later involved in when groups of men were talking about other women who were dressed very feminine and stuff like that. So they involved me in the conversation of what do you think this woman looks like or is she sexy, is, who looks better and stuff like that. So I was really involved in this locker room talk. <laughs> yes, that's a great way to describe it, yeah. That was a very, I won't say funny thing, but it was interesting to experience that and that this, what you just said, defensive othering, that's, mm -hmm. I think that's what I did too because I was also like, oh, I would never dressed like this to go to a metal show and stuff like that so it's a really good term to learn though defensive othering i think uh, we all do that in some form yeah. or other but uh yeah as, as you just said that is probably something that i described earlier today <laughs> um yeah this whole um i don't know thinking you're better because you're pointing out somebody else's differences in the end <laughs> it's just we're all just different and unique And like, whenever I talk about defensive othering, one of the things like, and this is what I'm teaching or just having a casual conversation with people is remember that as women, we're socialized to defensive other. We're from a very young age taught by the yes. media, all of the other external forces that we should defensive other. And that's just a way of women hurting other women. But the reason, and I, you know, I did it myself, of course, we're trained to do it in our societies. And so It's, it's a really tricky thing to navigate. Um, and, you know, I don't think anyone can ever be perfect at it. And when I was younger, I was the same. I remember being in like middle school and high school and would just, you know, like if I saw anything super girly related to metal, I would go out of my way to be like, oh, that's, you know, posers and they're weaker and like that kind of stuff. And they're just, you know, there's just not a place for it. But what's also interesting um, for my, this is just purely 100% from personal experience. When I first started going to concerts um, and, you know, I was old enough to like get in mosh pits and things like that, I've always been someone that loved makeup and fashion. So I wear a ton of makeup, even like to work, like I'll have eyeshadow and lashes and the lipstick and everything. And so in my mind, I viewed myself as a very masculine metal fan from my behaviors, but my physical appearance was the complete opposite direction. Very, very feminine, like a lot of, you know, big hair, makeup, all that stuff. And so I remember the first time I tried to get in a mosh pit, no one would like 
push me back. And I finally just like in between songs, I was like, why can't I like, what am I doing wrong? And uh, this guy was like, you're too feminine to be in this. And the fact that he said too feminine just was like, like a light went off in my head. And so after that, I remember going to a show purposefully not wearing makeup. I think I wore black lipstick and that was it. And then I tried again and it worked. And it was like the greatest feeling because I was finally in a mosh pit. But then I was kind of sad when I got home that night and I was like, man, I didn't get to wear my cool outfit and cool, crazy makeup to the show that I was you know, excited to do. And so I tried to figure out how do you like what to do with myself as a metal fan who was trying to be feminine in my outward appearance, but kind of had more masculine behaviors. And it's something I still wrestle with today. And, you know, that was 10 years ago. So I think that that's one thing that I like to talk about too with this is like, I feel like we shouldn't be forced to put ourselves into boxes as women and say either I am the masculine woman metal fan or I am the feminine woman metal fan. Like we can be all kinds of mixes of masculine and feminine at the same time. So I don't know if y'all have ever experienced anything like that, but it was a really profound experience for me as a metal fan to kind of have that happen. Hell yeah. Yeah. And to be aware of that too. I mean, we all probably have tons of these kind of anecdotes, but I also (laughs) Mm -hmm. remember like uh, people being surprised and shocked and looking at me when, when, when I approach uh, a mosh pit and I don't go fully in anymore, <laughs> but just like, staying, I don't either. <laughs> right? just like staying in the margins uh, with these super huge guys wanting to like protect you and putting their arm in front of you. And it's like, thanks, but I'm okay, dude. <laughs> yeah. Or, or when I brought my husband over to Wacken and uh, we met a group of guys and they were like, oh, she's the metalhead and you're the guest, so to speak. All right. <laughs> I yeah. definitely, yes, I had that happen myself. So there have been guys I have dated in the past that I would take to a metal show and they're, you know, definitely performing. They're not metal fans. Maybe they know a little bit of it. They know a few songs that they hear on the radio or something, but they're, you know, puffed out don't worry, like, I'm going to take care of you. And I'm like, sweetheart, I'll take care of you. You just stand in the back and like, I'll handle myself at the metal show. (laughs) Uh, And then even like my baby brother, like he's my little baby brother, which he's not that young. He's like, I think he just turned 30 or 29. So he's not a baby, but he likes metal. He just doesn't go to a lot of shows. And so the first time I took him to a show, he super went into like protective of my sister mode. And then he ended up getting stuck. And I had to kind of like, wiggle him out of being on the outskirts of the mosh pit and I was like you just go stand in the back and then he recorded a video of me moshing and was like I just can't believe that you actually did that he's like you you know you would talk about it but I didn't actually think you did it and it just like blew his mind that you know that that would happen but yeah so I've had that experience more times than I can tell I I imagine any woman who moshes has had that experience (laughs) totally and I mean that is something that is, or that shows these uh, differences in biology, right? Like uh, body mass and sizes and everything mm-hmm. in which we don't really have that much influence to make it equal, so to speak. So I was honestly uh, a bit scared when I read the whole theories of gender difference that it would go into that direction. <laughs> Um, because there are obviously biological uh, differences that we just um, cannot abolish, but that should never be an argument about how, um, you know, about differences in rights and mm-hmm. uh, autonomy and equality. So, um, absolutely. Yeah, that is, I think, also kind of a, 
a bit of a difficult discussion for me sometimes still to find the right arguments with people who bring that up. But yeah, I think Pia uh, wanted to say something as well. <laughs> um, was the so-called male gaze also part of your research? So I myself did not, during the master's thesis, go into the male gaze. Um, obviously, I'm familiar with the term and I've used it in other things that I've done. I don't think I mentioned, but kind of like my main area of research interest is popular culture. So I do, the male gaze is very important to that. Um, the one thing that I would, that I do talk about and I like to bring up, though, is this. So uh, the fact that Revolver magazine had, I don't know if they still do it, I need to check, but the 10, or was I think it was the top 10 hottest chicks in metal. And that would be that, the, the, like if I had a subscription for the year, that would be the magazine where I could get the most information about women in metal bands. But I hated that it was under the guise of who was the hottest and let's bring them 10, 9, 8, you know, so on and so forth down. And I think that that definitely gets at the male gaze. So the idea that this prominent metal magazine, you know, they may mention, and I think I do think it's gotten better since, you know, this was, I don't even know, this would have been probably back in like 2013, 14, 15, around that time period. So I think it's gotten better. I no longer have a subscription to the magazine anymore, so I can't say for sure. But the fact that if we wanted, you know, as readers of these magazines to get information on lots of women at one time in one magazine, It had to be from that Hottest Chicks in Metal magazine. Um, so, and I felt like too that also that left women who you know were not performing themselves in a feminine way in the band. They weren't in the issues. So I think that that's definitely something to consider and and definitely problematic. Um, I do think one thing that I and I'm also curious what both of you think about this too. So um, we talked earlier about women who maybe are now like having that really deep growl and they're being, you know, very masculine in their vocals, but then they dress very sexy. And for me, the epitome of that is like Carla Harvey or Heidi from Butcher Babies, um, which they're not as popular as some, you know, the other, the other bands that have women in them. But I feel like they've almost, and going to their shows too, I feel like they've found a way to kind of almost take the, you know, like weaponize their sexuality, weaponize the male gaze and kind of throw it back at mainstream society. And even to an extent, the metal subculture itself for those in the culture that still remain, you know, sexist and, you know, have the male gaze, so to speak. And I think that there's something really powerful about that for all women, even women who don't want to dress, you know, sexy and, and things like that at metal shows. But I feel like that they've done it in a way that brings power And any women bringing power in the subculture to me is good for all women. So I, I think that that's a neat, a neat thing that's kind of transpired over the last, you know, decade or so. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's very important that in Butcher Babies, there are two singers. Yes. Because that's very empowering that they are there on stage together, both dressed very sexy and both very badass at the vocals. <laughs> They show with this that there can be more than one woman, because if you look at everything else, if you look at the Snurfs, I think these little blue mm -hmm. people, <laughs> children stuff, there is one woman. If you look at any bit older superhero team, there's always one woman. And in a lot of bands, there is also only one woman. And in Butcher Babies, they show, yeah, we can empower each other. And also none of us has to be the the most beautiful woman or the sexiest one because we are here together on stage and we're just having a good time and that's so awesome yeah absolutely and yeah. I think that is such a good point to like general society like the token woman in pop culture that we see all over the place and kind of the message that that sends you know I always think about young girls but even you know 
women of any age that, you know, again, it's, it's subconscious. We don't explicitly stop. And for most people, they don't stop and say, gee, I wonder why there's only one superhero that's a woman in that group, but they still internalize the message subconsciously, even if they're not actively reflecting on it. And so I think you hit a really strong point there for the metal community, as well as just, you know, mainstream society in general. Yes, and that message usually is exactly that, that there is only place for one woman in this boys club and uh, you have to kind of fight for that position with other women who could actually be your teammates, your collaborators and just empower and support each other and just recognize that it's actually this competition is actually just a construct of somebody invented it at some point and they have triggered it onto us and we have sadly believed it and put other women down and that is not what we should be doing in the it's future. It's so much easier for the patriarchy if we fight each other. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, if exactly. we fight each other, they don't have to do anything. <laughs> right. Yes, but yeah. also uh, with... What you were mentioning, uh, both of you, about you know the male gaze and objectification and the sexualization of, of, of women is, I think, um, also a very delicate topic because on the one hand, obviously, it's great to be the person in power over the uh, objectification and or sexualization of your own body. And yes, more power to you if you want to use that for your advantage. That's just amazing if that is your decision. Obviously, we've heard over the years uh, other kind of stories about the music industry. And we have also um, heard firsthand from, from women in metal who just don't want that and don't want to participate in that. And um, that is also a very valid choice. So, um, and also this whole thing leads to other more dangerous sides of discrimination, you know, um, violence against women and all of that, which of which we don't, fortunately, we don't hear too much in the context of heavy metal music, I think. Um, but it's always uh, something to have an eye out for. And because we are, and we talked about this uh, last year in the summer, because we are so, or not, not yet too many women in the context of heavy metal concerts and festivals, etc., we should um, be a bit more protective of each other maybe, or we already are. And that is something that shouldn't be necessary, but we have developed a lot of coping mechanisms. Um, to, you know, just go through life <laughs> being a metalhead and, and living it. And uh, there was something else that I also forgot now. But anyway. <laughs> I can um, pick up the word metalhead <laughs> um, until you found your thought because that's also um, a chapter in your book, Metalhead, Music as Identity. Is there a difference between men who identify as metalhead and women what did women say about how they identify or did they really identify as metalhead um that's a great question so i can't give you like obviously i did qualitative interviews with a small group of people so i can't make like macro macro yeah, generalizations so. or give statistics about how many are women versus things like that um but what i did find and i thought this was very interesting um is that that was the one thing that men and women seem to give the same answer for. 
was that they were very proud to be metalheads. And so many of them used the word passion. I would say, what does it mean to be a metalhead? It's all about passion. Men and women both use that word. Almost every person used that word. And it really struck me because I feel like one unique thing about, and you know, not to, again, I'm not trying to make a blanket statement, but I feel like most people that I've talked to in interviews or just, you know, at shows, you view that as a crucial part of your identity in a lot of cases. Like, I don't know a lot of people who are kind of like casual metal fans. It's kind of like you're in it or you're not really in it. You know what I mean? Um, like kind of an us versus them mentality to an extent. So like, I felt like that was one of the good things where we could see progression, you know, towards feminism or towards more women in metal was that both men and women were very confident and comfortable saying, yes, it's a part of my identity and it's a part of my identity that I'm proud of and I'm passionate about it. Um, I don't know necessarily if, if I'm trying to remember back if there was anything in the interviews where anyone didn't want to use the term metalhead. I I can't say for sure, but I don't remember anyone that had that feeling or thought. Hmm. Um, it's good to also talk about what men and women metalheads have in common and not only about the differences. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Because I think there are more things we have in common than <laughs> there are things that yeah, yeah. are different, basically. Yeah, very true. Mm -hmm. So Kiki, did you find your question? Yeah, <laughs> but I don't. I don't really know if it's uh, uh, that relevant again. And um, it, I don't think it was a question. It was more of a comment. Um, we were talking about the male gaze and all of this, and um, I remember noticing uh, through our work <laughs> with uh, metal and high heels uh, before we became bleeding metal. Um, on our quest, so to speak, to make uh, women in metal more visible we noticed that our own uh, audience was also very male. And this was also because the majority of the, of the audience, uh, especially in symphonic metal, is very male and a bit older than us even. It was a bit conflicting uh, for us because we actually want to encourage more women to, you know, live their best male head life and not necessarily you know just to bring the news to the people who uh, get them anyway <laughs> so um that was that was one of the things um you know to see that weirdly when seeing women on stage not necessarily more women will be in the audience do you maybe have like a sense of what subgenre of metal attracts attracts the more women or, or something like that? Um, so I definitely think from personal experience, I think the new metal genre has still, it's, it's definitely more men than women, but I do think that there are more women in that one. Um, I, you know, and y'all know this, but the funny thing too, is like when I was doing these interviews, so many participants would stop me and say, well, what subgenre are we talking about? Like, I can't answer that in broad for heavy metal or what genre. And so, and, you know, and like, it gets really elitist. That word elitist came up a whole lot that like, you know, certain genres are supposed to be better than other genres, subgenres and this, that, and the other. Um, so from just from speaking from someone who goes to a lot specifically, like the new metal shows, like I mentioned before, I see a lot of women at those compared to like, some of the heavier bands, maybe that I've got, like, I remember being at, an in flames concert specifically and like I might have been the only woman there 
And then, you know, a week later, I went to like a Slipknot concert and there were, you know, still more men, but there were a lot more women, which obviously Slipknot is a bigger band. So it was a bigger venue and there were more people there in general. But, and I also think, and this, I don't know why this is, but I think obviously the more mainstream the band is, the more women you're going to see. So if you go to a Metallica concert, you're probably going to see a lot of women at a Metallica concert um, just because of their popularity um, compared to like the smaller bands. It makes sense in general to uh, know that or to realize that in general, the population is supposed to be kind of 50-50, but mm -hmm. metal is not a mainstream genre. And so, <laughs> I don't know, like the, the, the proportions change in, in that way as well. And of course, like the more, the more indie underground bands won't necessarily have a, a lot of uh, female fans because they're just not generally known and the bigger the band the bigger the portion of their fan base that will be female something like that it's probably not I don't know <laughs> I will say and this is not from research this is personal experience um I don't know how familiar y'all are specifically with new metal but my absolute favorite band until I die will be Korn um I'm hardcore Korn fan um and I think that After talking to other corn fans, men and women, um, and even some non-gender binary corn fans, the fact that Jonathan Davis lyrics talk a lot about sexual assault from his childhood, I see a lot of women fans who were drawn to that band for that reason. And I think that having a lyrical content about something like that in a large portion of your songs, and obviously we know sexual assault is at a much higher rate for women than men, even though, of course, men are absolutely still victims of sexual assault. I think that draws in women. The fact that they've got someone who is angry about something that happened to him where he was sexually assaulted and he is letting that rage out. And if you're a woman and you identify with that, that's very powerful. And so that's kind of one of the reasons that I do think that I tend to see more women fans specifically at corn shows. And, you know, I talk, you know, I talk to people in, and I've seen corn over 15 times now. Um, and I, you know, I talk to people in between sets and stuff, and that gets brought up a lot. The fact that he, he is open about being sexually assaulted as a man, that they respect that a lot. So I think that, um, the lyrical content of the songs can have a pretty big impact on who you see coming within the subgenres of metal themselves. Um, and so I would suspect if you, if you were able to do an academic study where you really kind of dove in and looked at, you know, like you mentioned, album covers, lyrical content, Um, maybe even the style of dress and physical appearance of the members of the bands. And if you see some that have symbolism or narratives that may resonate with a woman audience, that's where you're going to see more women fans probably. Um, but again, that's just kind of based on my personal experience of going to a lot of metal shows, not necessarily based on any kind of research that I've done. That was very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I have the table of contents of your book here right in front of me. And there are so many interesting topics in there so i can totally recommend to all of you out there who are listening to this podcast now um, get informed about the book we have the link in our show notes so that you can um, you see where you can get it or or um, get a sneak peek into the book um, because yeah the topics are really really interesting um, is there something that you found out in your research that was surprising for you or that impressed you I would think the thing that surprised me the most, and this is coming from myself being a woman who is a heavy metal head, right? I think that I was surprised that your average 
white cisgender man who is a fan didn't think you had to do all those things to prove yourself. Because in my mind, I just assumed this was something that all of us did. It was part of, you know, we we are very focused on authenticity as, you know, being true and real metalheads, not being posers. And so I assumed that that was going to be for all of the people that I interviewed. But then to see that a lot of men were like, you know, just go to a show. And I was like, really? Like, they think that that that's enough to call yourself a metalhead. If someone told me they went to one show and then they said they were a metalhead, I would be offended. Like, you're not, like, Mm. you haven't done anything, right? And so I think that seeing that there's definitely a misconception between what your average traditional stereotypical white metal fan thinks compared to people who have some type of a marginalized identity. And those are the ones that feel that they need to prove themselves. I think that that spoke a lot to me about you know, heavy metal in general, but just also kind of about like being a human in a society where, you know, there are norms and stuff, thinking that you have to do certain things because of a part of your identity and then other people don't realize it. And I think that it speaks volumes in regards to many things, but the one that I think I would kind of focus on at this point would be um, that they, they're not aware of what we, we go through as having a marginalized status. They don't know that we're putting in all this work and I feel like if they don't know we're putting in that work to prove ourselves, then we're doing a lot of work and we're not getting credit for it. And how often historically and even today does that happen to women that we put in so much work into things and we don't even get credit that we we do the things it's like, oh, yeah, of course they did that. That's what mm-hmm. women do. And I felt like that was a that resonated with me a lot um, personally. And then the other thing that I have said um, kind of is like a big takeaway from the research is I I feel like if you ever come across a metal fan who brings up, you know, like they don't like, there's enough women in metal. We don't need any more. Like, you know, it's, it's fair or whatever. I always say, remember women metalheads are not here to take away anything from the genre. We're here to add to it. We're going to make it better. We're going to bring in new perspectives. And so not having good representation and not just from women, any, you know, any other um, race, gender, sexuality, sexual orientation, whatever that may look like different identities they're bringing something new to the genre and that's just going to make it better. So we're not taking away, we're adding. And I think that that's a powerful message that I hope a lot of people when they read the book will take away from the book. Yeah, awesome. And there oh, will yeah. still be bands um, with only male members. So the right. other things don't go away. You just have more to choose from. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Hell yes. One of the comments that I heard once from well, many fans of uh, symphonic metal was that uh, women's singing was more emotional in their ears and that is why they are so drawn to it. So um, that is obviously just the start. <laughs> But, yeah, absolutely. And it may not, not be uh, so, uh, like, it may not apply to every female singer. It may not apply to every band and also not every fan or listener uh, will interpret it that, that way but um, yeah I, I totally agree um, women have these different perspectives that will uh, and that have enriched uh, music and heavy metal especially since always and um, yeah it's just it just makes it better and better and yes also uh, Yeah, let's always make, uh, and that is one of the things that we were talking before as well, um, maybe to close up the, the episode, um, how to 
be more uh, feminist in the context of heavy metal if you decide to be <laughs> that way or to be an ally to uh, women and uh, non-binary people, trans people, um, people of color, etc., is to make them more visible. We have been trying to do that um, lately as well, so recommending bands with uh, these uh, people in them uh, and not only that but also making the people behind the scenes behind the the stages uh, more visible as well we have talked to amazing people here for the podcast um, women in metal uh, record labels uh, women in the administration of festivals uh, women in the academics of heavy metal like you and um, so many more so uh, it's just so important to know that first of all women have been part of uh, rock and then metal since its very beginning and we maybe we're just not so uh, vigilant and didn't see them so the more we make them visible and the more representation we get that's what Pia and I always say right in order Absolutely. to know that we can do things we have to see those things done by people who look like us so uh get on those get on those stages <laughs> yes yeah <laughs> yes is there anything else you want to say so i was actually going to say literally what you just said represent in any research i've done or any you know with pop culture or anything representation to me is absolutely the most important we have to inspire younger generations and they are inspired when they see accurate representation so we really need to see everything, not just heavy metal, where we see an accurate representation and reflection of what society actually looks like um, and is. And then the second thing, too, I just so appreciate the fact that both of you have this podcast that you work on and you're talking about these issues because I feel like that is one of the biggest pieces of representation is for having places where, you know, women or any other, um, again, historically marginalized identities can come and get information and find community and find support. And I think that what you're doing is exactly the thing that's going to propel this and make us actually go closer to uh, a feminism of heavy metal or heavy metal feminism, whatever you want to call it. Thank you. <laughs> um, if people want to follow you, are you somewhere on social media or on Instagram? I am on um, Instagram. So my hashtag is goth rose aesthetic. It is definitely more fashion and aesthetic, but you will see me in some, you know, corn t-shirts and other heavy metal band apparel. Yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. What are you listening to at the moment? Um, well, actually, I'm glad you asked. So Corn has a new song out as of this morning, and I have not listened to it. I was going to reward myself with listening to it after I got finished uh, with talking with y'all today. <laughs> oh, but awesome. I'm definitely um, really, really into, uh, in this moment right now, anything, just Maria Brink, Googling her, reading about her. I, that's definitely my, my current hot topic, so to speak. <laughs> Hell yeah. Vicky, what are you listening to? Um, right now I'm listening to a lot of things, but I like the new Volumes record a lot. Bend mm. is an amazing uh, single, an amazing song in general. And you, Pia? I'll definitely check that out. Yes. <laughs> um, I'm listening to the, to the latest album from Infected Rain that was just released in early January, I think. And I got a promo copy by a very unpopular band from Leipzig. It's called The Sleeper. And they play, I would call it progressive metalcore. Um, and 
I'm gonna write a review about it. And so, yeah, that record is really good. So let's link it also in the show notes and recommend the band to our listeners. <laughs> okay, thank you so very much, uh, Dr. Anna, for uh, joining us and talking to us and um, yeah, making us even wiser. Not that we were wise at all before, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for having me and taking like this means so much to me. And again, just one more time, this the work that y'all are doing is just fantastic. <laughs> Thank you. And right back at you. We all need to um, yeah, to get informed and to look at things in a more analytic way. And that is what you're doing on a higher level. So um, I look forward to reading your book as well if i ever get through my book list <laughs> i should definitely read more but i spend my time listening to podcasts and you should also follow the bleeding metal podcast on spotify and stitcher or subscribe on apple podcasts or wherever you're listening to this right now and uh yeah also recommend us to your friends and such and uh, we will be back next month Uh, probably talking again about uh, women's rights and things and also but before that and before I forget um, March 8th is coming and it is International Women's Day and I just wanted to say to everybody out there who maybe doesn't know that it's not about sending flowers and telling uh, the women in your life how awesome and beautiful they are and how they are the source of life and uh, stupid things like that. I'm sorry, but um, not sorry. It's about uh, remembering and celebrating the fight, the feminist fight uh, that has been happening for centuries and uh, the one that we still have to do. So if you want to be an ally, if you want to be a feminist, why don't you just support feminist causes financially if you can? Why don't you go out and attend women's marches all over the world why don't you just give your female partner a rest for the day and do all of the housework and um, you know other things like that and just know that it's a day to keep fighting for the rights that we don't have in all of the world women all over the world don't have yet but we're on that so yeah and then That is that is coming in March. <laughs> yes. Yeah, awesome. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Thanks again for being guests in this podcast and thank you all out there for listening to this episode. And yeah, hopefully you'll listen to the next episode again. <laughs> bye bye. <laughs> bye. Bye.